Welcome to the Make That Money Honey podcast. I'm your host, Sandra Joe, and each week I will be bringing you a combination of interviews and solo episodes with industry leaders in finance, entrepreneurship, and women in business. As a former certified financial planner turned financial coach and entrepreneur, I will be sharing my knowledge on how to have better conversations about money within your marriage, relationships, and family dynamics. I will also be teaching fundamental financial literacy about all of the topics that you wish you learned in school. This podcast will get you to think outside the box, create more abundance in your life, and improve your money mindset. So make sure to follow and tune in weekly, and it would mean the world to me if you shared these episodes with a friend and left me a five-star review. Hey guys, just a quick disclaimer, as this is a technical episode, the content of this episode and all of my Sandra Joe's social media is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on any of my platforms constitutes as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by myself or any other third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or any other financial instruments in this or any other jurisdiction. You should always consider your own personal circumstances before making any investments or financial changes. Alrighty, enough with the fun stuff. Let's dive in. Welcome back for another episode of the Make That Money Honey podcast. I am super excited to be interviewing one of my friends, Samantha Manning. We used to work together back in the day, waitressing at Cactus Club. And if you're from Canada, you know what that chain is all about. You make some of your best friends for life there. So Samantha is a Vancouver-based mortgage broker who holds a Bachelor of Business Administration and a Marketing Communications Diploma and comes with nearly a decade of experience in sales and marketing in the technology and finance sector. Samantha has always had a passion for numbers, problem solving, and helping her clients by providing best-in-class service and support for one of the most important decisions of their life. One of her specialties includes helping first-time homeowners in understanding everything they need to know about getting into the real estate market, which is what we will be focusing on today in this podcast. Outside of work, Samantha loves being outdoors in nature and exploring all the things that this beautiful city has to offer with her husband and two-year-old son. Samantha currently works at TMG, the mortgage group, where she is passionate about helping people achieve home ownership and financial freedom. You can check her out on Instagram at samanthamanning.mortgages or check out her website at samanthamanning.ca. All right, Sam, I am so excited. I have so many questions for you because I probably fall into your target market category (laughs) as I'm looking to get into the real estate market myself. So I guess the first thing that comes to mind when, when you look at working with a mortgage broker is why would you work with a mortgage broker versus going directly to your bank? And especially for someone like myself, I've been with RBC my whole life. You know, why would I go to a mortgage broker versus go to an RBC mortgage specialist? Hey, Sandra, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation with you, first and foremost. And to answer your question, this is probably kind of the number one thing that my friends and family asked me as well when I first got into this industry. And I think it's just, you know, most people think that they exactly they'll walk into their bank and their bank will who they've been banking with potentially their whole life or where they hold their, you know, investments or debit card. And they just think that makes the most sense. But the reason why it makes a lot of sense to actually go through the mortgage broker versus kind of just going into your bank 
is that we provide you with a multitude of options. So we have access to, you know, in my particular case, I have access to 40, 50 different lenders. Those include the major banks, which we call A lenders. They also include um, monoline lenders. And monoline lenders are, they're massive, but they um, focus specifically on mortgages only. Um, so you wouldn't have actually really heard of any of them. You're not going to be able to just walk off the street and walk into one of these places, but they're doing hundreds of billions of mortgages per year. And then in addition to those, we have um, alternative lending options for people who may not you know, qualify at the bank level and then private lending options as well, um, in addition to credit unions. So we have so many options out there for people. And I think that's the biggest kind of um, upside to using a mortgage broker is just having access to all of that. And the nice thing is you come to me, I'll kind of do, you know, an initial um, meeting with you and a review, and I can kind of determine what your goals are and figure out a tailored solution that's designed specifically for you, right? If you go into your bank, your bank may be a specific lender that deals or prefers certain types of clients. And you may not know that, right? Like going on, going in and um, let's say you're banking with RBC. So the nice thing is we have that kind of holistic picture, right? So we understand what all the different lenders are, what their specific preferences are. And based on that, we can kind of recommend the best option. And like I said, the best tailored solution for you. So that's a big one. Um, another one is buying power. So myself and my company that I work for, we obviously deal with, you know, tons of mortgages <laughs> um, on a yearly basis. And so that allows us to actually negotiate a great rate for you versus you just walking into your bank as an individual and trying to negotiate that rate. So that's another big factor. Education is another one. So one thing that I really pride myself on as a mortgage broker is being able to kind of really assist and educate you throughout that whole entire buying journey, because that can last several months, even a year, right? From when you're initially kind of thinking about getting into the market until you actually end up buying your home. So that I like to like really handhold my clients and educate them along the way versus, you know, maybe if you go into your bank, they've kind of got their one specific product. Um, that's what they really know. That's their specialty. And they're not going to be able to kind of give you that more holistic picture and then ongoing support as well. So we actually like if, if you're my client, I'd love to be your client for life. And I will walk you through that initial purchase. I will help you with refinancing if you need it down the road. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of there to handhold you throughout that whole lifetime. And then the last piece really that maybe people don't know about is that it's completely free to use a mortgage broker. So it's actually no cost to you at all. And like I said, so we, we you know, we take you through that whole pre-approval process, that whole journey. Um, and that's us really just helping you kind of navigate that. Um, and we don't charge at all for that. So the way that we do get paid ultimately is when the deal is funded um, and we get paid through the actual lending institution. So again, no cost to you as an individual. It's kind of a no brainer, right? Like why would you go into a bank and just get that one particular product that the bank has to offer um, when you could be getting just a much more kind of vast array of options? Yeah, I love that. And I actually didn't know much about mortgage broking until a couple of years ago when I started working as a financial planner in Australia and we started having a referral partner who uh, came into our office and would do free consultations with our clients. And a lot of them had never worked with a mortgage broker before. And as you mentioned, we're doing things like refinancing when the rates were dropping and they were able to get a much better deal that just by switching 
lending institutions, they could go from one bank to another, get a much better rate and save themselves ultimately thousands of dollars over the amortization period. And that was just something that they didn't even know was an option to them because they had always been with the same bank, you know, just with their same mortgage that they originally took out when they were in their mid twenties or something like that. And so that's a really cool service that I think a lot of people can learn from this particular podcast about and just how many options are out there. And I know, I know that mortgage brokers can also get better rates than what you can negotiate in the bank yourself. So even if you were to go and knock on say four doors, mortgage brokers get access to, as you mentioned, all of these other wholesale lenders who can give better rates because of the volume that you're putting through your business. So that's that's really cool. And, and I think that that's a great way for people to have exposure to other ways of saving money, because even if it's 0.5 of a percent each year, you know, they can, uh, they can put that towards other things. So, okay, awesome. So now we know why we would work with a mortgage broker. Can you give us a little bit of uh, your experience with what it looks like to go through the pre-approval process? And especially for myself, like I've never bought uh, property before, so I don't have that pre-existing credit with any institutions or history that way. So what what does it look like from a step-by-step process of, of how somebody new to the market would go through that? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially an approval works or sorry, a lender will uh, base an approval uh, on kind of five main factors. And so the first being credit, your credit history, um, the second being income, the third being your debts, and then fourth being down payment. And then the fifth and final piece that a lot of times people don't necessarily realize is it's actually based on the property itself. So the pre-approval process, obviously we don't have that property in place necessarily yet. But what we can kind of look at and what we can um, dive into are those first four things. So we'll look at your credit, uh, we'll look at your income, we'll look at your debts, and then we're going to look at your down payment. And those are kind of the main things, obviously, that are in our control. And it's a really good idea to go through the pre-approval process as early along in your buying journey as you can. Like I would say that should actually probably be the first thing that you're doing when you're looking to get into the market. And the reason for that is that allows us to take a whole look at your financial picture. I I like to do like a full financial analysis for my clients during the pre-approval process so that we can really kind of mitigate any risk when you are actually ready to place that offer. And as we know, we're in a highly competitive market here in Vancouver. You really want to make sure you can get all of your ducks in a row as early on in that process as possible, right? And there's lots of things that we can kind of do to help along the way. So for instance, I like to pull people's credit when I'm doing a pre-approval so that I can actually take a look and see, okay, is there any red flags here? Is there anything that's going to cause any issues? Is there anything that we can potentially get ahead of to put you in a better position when you are in fact ready to go and uh, put an offer onto a property? So it's so good to kind of get ahead of that as early as possible. I highly recommend it for anybody. Um, The the obvious other uh, reason why you would want to kind of get ahead of that is because it gives you an understanding of how much can I actually afford, right? So you don't want to go shopping with a realtor, potentially be wasting your time, obviously wasting the realtor's time, not kind of knowing what is my actual budget? How much am I going to get approved for? Like, what can I actually spend? 
So yeah, I've kind of maybe given you a little bit of insight into why I think they're so important, but yeah, you want to make sure you're getting ahead of everything as soon as possible, as early along in the journey as possible. And I kind of want to reiterate that because that's something that's super important. The other thing that it does is typically lenders will offer a rate hold for 120 days. Most lenders will offer that. And the nice thing about that is particularly as we're seeing now in an environment where rates are starting to go up. Um, it protects you. So if you and I, if like, let's say you're like, okay, Sam, I want to start shopping in the new year for my house. I would say, okay, Sandra, let's get started on your pre-approval now. Um, let's go through that whole process. And then I'll actually lock in a rate for you. And what that means is when you are ready to buy, as long as it's within that 120 days, the lender will honor that rate that they've given you. So if rates do go up, you're protected, which is really nice. If you're in an environment where rates go down, they'll honor the lower rate as well. So it's it's a really good idea, um, but particularly as we are seeing in an environment where rates are starting to go up like they are now. Um, it also gives your realtor confidence um, when you have that pre-qualification because they know, okay, this is a serious buyer, right? So the selling realtor knows that this is a serious buyer. Your realtor kind of knows you're a serious buyer. And so that kind of um, protects you on those sides as well. And then to actually kind of take you maybe through what that process looks like, because um, I think that was part of your kind of original question as well. Um, what what I like to do during a pre-approval process is have like kind of an initial call or meeting with somebody just to kind of walk through like, what are your goals? Um, let's talk about kind of, uh, you know, what you're looking for in a mortgage. A lot of the times people just kind of go to rate, but there's a lot of other considerations that you want to take into mind when you are looking like, for instance, how long do you kind of plan on being in your property? Are there going to be high penalty fees if you break that early? Like all sorts of different things that all kind of ask to get as much information as I can from you so that I can then fit you with the best letter and the best product. I'll get you to fill out an application. Like I said, I'll pull your credit and make sure we're all good with that. And then I'll um, actually ask you for documentation up front. And the reason why I do this is because A, it saves us time so that when you are in a place to go ahead and make an offer, we're like ready to hit send because we've done all of our due diligence in advance. And secondly, like I said, it allows us to take a look and see is there anything maybe missing or any areas where the lender might be like, wait a minute, that's a red flag. So for instance, something super common, if you work for yourself um, or you're self-employed, a lot of times people will say, okay, I make a hundred grand a year. Um, but in reality, that's actually their gross income and they're writing off, let's say $50,000 of expenses. So on paper, they're netting really 50 grand a year, right? And so people will say, hey, I'm making a hundred grand a year, but when I look at your T1s, I'm gonna see, you know, that's actually not what the lender's gonna look at. So there's a lot of things like that that you wanna get ahead of early in the process. And there's specific lenders that are going to be really preferential towards people who work for themselves. And so they're going to be able to offer us a program that might be more beneficial than a different type of lender. So all those types of things, it ties back to the whole, my, what I'm kind of reiterating here is it's a really good idea to get ahead of this in advance. And I like to do a full financial analysis of my client during that pre-approval process. What people may not realize is if you walk into a bank and you go to a pre-approval, let's say you go to RBC, where you, where you normally do your banking, they're typically going to just take an application from you. They'll do like a quick look to see how much you're going to get approved for, but they're not going to actually do that full financial review right off the bat. 
Um, they're not going to review your documentation. They're not going through that entire underwriting process. Um, but what they'll do is they'll give you a little letter and say, okay, Sandra, you're you know locked in at this particular rate for the next 120 days. Um, and that is another reason why it's a really good idea to go to an experienced mortgage broker who actually can do more of that due, dilig due diligence right up front. So I'm reviewing all that documentation. And then that way, like I said, we're in a really good place when we actually go uh, move forward with the offer. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so that's really good to know because... I know a lot of people can probably get excited and be like, oh, well, we want to find the property first. But then if they find the property and then they have to go through that whole process, maybe they don't qualify or, you know, are $300,000 uh, mm -hmm. short or something like that. Now, you yeah. did mention the fifth thing that some people didn't know about was the property itself. Do you mind just touching on that a little bit? Absolutely. So the property itself is a big component of whether the lender is actually going to lend to you. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, the main one being they'll order, typically most lenders are going to order an appraisal and they want that appraisal to match up with the value of what you've paid. Right. Um, so we won't know that and we won't be able to get that appraisal going until we actually have the actual property in place. So what I'll do when I'm doing the pre-approval is I'll just put like kind of a placeholder property into your application, right? Um, but we're estimating things, like we're estimating what the property tax is gonna be, we're estimating what the strata fees are gonna be. Those may end up changing um, once you actually move forward with, once you have the actual property that you're moving forward with. Based on those changes, that can actually impact potentially your ability to borrow. So if we have input, let's say $500 in strata fees, and now you're buying a property and those strata fees are actually $1,000, that can sometimes have an impact on whether or not you're going to be able to afford that place because it impacts the debt, right? So just little things like that are, 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 are really important. And that's why ultimately, as much as we can kind of cover all of our bases based on the factors that are in, are in our control, which are those first four things that I mentioned, there's always that fifth piece, which is the property. Um, so it's not a guarantee. A pre-approval, unfortunately, is just never a guarantee. We can do as much as we can to mitigate all the risk and everything in our control, but ultimately the property is the final piece of the puzzle. So that is why it is a good idea if you can to go in with a subject offer, a subject to financing, so that we are covering our bases in the event that for some reason, um, you know, the appraisal doesn't match up or something happens with the actual property itself. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's super useful because that's, that's one thing I know I didn't know for sure, which was strata fees, you know, or, or something like that. It, it's, it's not something you necessarily consider when you're buying and you might say, oh yeah, I can afford a $3,000 mortgage, but it's actually 3,500 or 3,700 by the time you add the strata, which you're required to pay. So yeah. when it comes to calculating your ability to borrow, let's say we didn't hadn't gone through the pre-approval mm -hmm. process yet. Is there any income multiple or anything like that that is sort of like a rough guide for people to anticipate how much they could borrow or how does that work? I really hate to use any type of income multiple, to be honest, because, and obviously there's online calculators where you can go and, um, you know, input a few pieces of information and it'll usually kind of give you a guideline. The problem with that is you're really not seeing the full picture. And I think a lot of people don't know things like, you know, car payments or student loans, like those can have big impacts on your ability to borrow. 
So when we go through the pre-approval process, we're looking at all of those things. It's going to give you just a much more accurate picture of what you can afford. So I'd say, yeah, I kind of try to stay away from any type of income multiple because it's just not really going to give you a really accurate picture. Um, the best way to do it, like we've discussed, go through the pre-approval process, just do that right off the bat. And that's going to give you a much better understanding. Like people don't realize for every roughly $600 in car loan, that can decrease your ability, your max borrowing amount by about $100,000. So there's, wow. you know, all sorts of those things that yeah. people maybe don't realize that um, really can impact your ability to borrow. So until we do that full financial review, it's really hard to, to say. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah, that's also really good to know about the car loan thing. I know a friend of mine recently purchased her home and one of the the subject to financing was that they had to pay their car off in full mm. because even though they only had three months left on the loan, they it was still coming up as a $600 payment in during right. their approval process. So they just paid that little bit off and then they ended up getting approved. And that's a perfect example of they were going and they did it right, right? Where they were speaking totally, to a professional were. in advance who was able to tell them that, right? Now, if they had just gone in without knowing that in advance, they probably would not have been approved. So it's so good that they started that journey earlier on. Yeah. Okay, so that's good to know about the loans and car loans. So what about down payment? So we're looking at down payment and I know there's this sort of old wives tale that you have to have 20% in order to be a good size down payment. And a lot of people probably wait until they have that much. Do you think it makes sense to wait or are there other options that people should consider for having a lower amount as a down payment? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it does probably depend on the particular market that you're in and that you're living in. I would say in our market in Vancouver, uh, in a market where we've clearly seen over the past few years, some really high appreciation year over year. Sometimes we're looking at, you know, almost 15 to 20%, depending on the particular market. But, um, you know, we're obviously seeing a, a high level of appreciation. Um, and so my advice, particularly to like younger people who are kind of first time home buyers who are really looking to get into the market is, you know, the sooner, to be honest, that you can get in, the better. So I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown of maybe how the down payment kind of works and then and then what it looks like uh, with mortgage insurance as well, just to make it kind of clear for people. So uh, first and foremost, anything over a million dollars, you have to put down 20%. So unfortunately, anything over a million mortgage insurance is off the table. Anytime you put down less than 20%, so the, the property has to be valued at less than a million, um, you have the, uh, you have the option to put down less than 20%. And when you do that, you do have to purchase a uh, third party mortgage insurance and that's lenders insurance. So that's essentially the lender protecting themselves in case you default on your mortgage. Um, even though you're paying for it, it's to protect the lender, right? Uh, now what that kind of looks like. So let's say, um, and there is a sliding scale for the amount of down payment that you can put down. So if you are putting, um, buying anything between, uh, or un, sorry, less than 500,000, you have to put down 5%. And then anything between that 500,000 and a million, you have to put down 10%. So as an example, let's say you, Sandra, are buying a $700,000 property. You would need to put down 25,000 on that first 500,000. And then you would need to put down 20,000 on that remaining 200,000. So on a $700,000 property, the minimum down payment you have to put down is $45,000. 
Um, in Because that's not a full 20%, you're still going to have to be accountable for mortgage insurance. And the way that that works is depending on how much you put down, there's a variance, but it ranges from around 2 to 4% of the property value is what you're going to be paying in mortgage insurance. Um, that kind of typically scares people because they're thinking, oh, I don't want to have to pay this big upfront cost of mortgage insurance. I'd rather kind of wait and maybe save and, and you know, not have to pay that large chunk. But what I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize is the way that that's allocated is the uh, lender will pay the insurer that money up front, but they will actually allow you to add it onto your mortgage and amortize it over that period of time. So 25, let's say it's a 25 year amortization. They're amortizing that um, fee over the course of that uh, term. So what that means is it comes out to typically being like one or $200 a month, right? Depending on how much you put down. Um, so I think in the grand scheme of things, I like to use the example, like if you're, if you're a first time buyer and let's say you're buying a one bedroom condo in Vancouver proper, and it's $500,000, um, the difference between being able to save that 5%, the $25,000 versus having to save 20%, which is a hundred thousand dollars. That could be the difference of waiting to get into the market for like five to seven years. Like that's a lot. $75,000 is a lot of extra money to have to save. So if you have the opportunity to get in with the $25,000 and then pay, you know, that kind of nominal $100, $150, whatever it's going to be exactly per month extra. To me, it's a no brainer in this market because you're going to see appreciation year over year that's going to kind of mitigate whatever you've had to pay in terms of that insurance. And it doesn't make it, it doesn't make it as unaffordable or, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's digestible when you look at it, like in that, from that lens of it being a couple hundred bucks per month. I think most people can, 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 you know, swallow that cost. Um, especially because now instead of paying somebody else's mortgage, you're, or sorry, <laughs> paying somebody else's mortgage by renting, you're now building equity by paying your own mortgage. And then you're also seeing that appreciation. Totally. I yeah. hope that kind of answers yeah, your that's, question. That's that totally makes sense because to be honest, I have been thinking, Oh, I got to wait until I have this 20% and prices of properties keep going up and up and up. Mm -hmm. And realistically, like my first place is probably not going to be over a million dollars. And as you mentioned, if properties are going up 15% and let's say theoretically, that the mortgage lender's insurance is 2%, you're netting 13% return on investment year after year if you take away the 2% that you're paying and you're getting 15% in growth. So when it does come time to sell, you've actually, you're still farther ahead than if you were to wait those three extra years and lost, in, lost out on the 15% growth that would have happened over those three years, which would have compounded, right? So absolutely, that's a really, really good point that I think a lot of people miss is that they feel that they don't want to waste money on the mortgage lender's insurance, but instead they're, the opportunity cost is that they're actually losing out on the capital appreciation of just getting into the market in the first place. Yeah, so I'm glad we touched on that because yeah, 100%. like I said, I didn't I didn't know right. Nobody wants to pay a fee that they don't have to, but if but if it's a small fee in exchange for good growth, then it's not the end of the world. Yeah, and the cost of borrowing right now, as we know, is really really low. So it's a really excellent time to be able to get into the market. And the other thing that I think is really important for first time buyers to understand is. 
Um, it's a lot harder to get into the market if you are at a place in your life where you maybe are, you know, with a partner or you're wanting to start a family and you now need to buy a larger property, right? Like, let's say you right. need, you have a growing family and you're like, well, I need a three bedroom now or and I need a townhouse or, you know, starter home, family home. Well, let's be honest, if you're in the Vancouver region, you're looking at probably over a million dollars now. And that means, A, you're no longer able to put down the less than 20%. And it means that you're now having to probably, you know, come up with two to $300,000 of liquid cash that you can put towards a down payment. Totally. And that becomes really, really difficult for a lot of people. And a lot of people just don't have that option. And so, you know, um, they're either having to get a borrowed down payment from their parents or they're just really turned off and they're not able to get into the market at all. So the sooner that you can really get in as a younger person, when you don't have to jump into those types of um, properties and you can just get in with that smaller amount as a first time home buyer, it allows you to then leverage that property. You've seen that appreciation. You've started building that equity. It makes it so much easier to get into the market when you're a little older and you do need more space or you do need a bigger place. Um, and one perfect example of this is, I mean, I had a friend who just, um, they bought in Olympic Village around six years ago. They bought mm-hmm. pre-built here. And um, they're now at a place where their family has expanded. And so they decided they wanted to buy kind of their family home and they moved, um, they bought back in the suburbs where one of them is from, where their family is. And what they were able to do is um, they took that existing uh, property that they own in Olympic Village. They were able to refinance it. So they were able to take out what a refinance is. is Essentially, you're kind of able to take out some of the equity that's been built in that property and you create a new mortgage and you're able to release that equity. And that allowed them to then um, buy this new property. So now they actually own two properties, right? Um, They have somebody else now paying their mortgage in this rental that that they've converted to a rental. And they were able to take that equity and they were able to use that for a down payment for their new family home. So, you know, there's options like that out there for people as well. So it's just, it's super exciting. Like the earlier that you can kind of get in, like I said, the better, because it just allows you to really open doors later on and sets yourself up for success in the long term. No pun intended, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's, yeah. And that's a really, that's a really good way to look at it too, because you're not only building equity in your existing property, but then when you do the refinance and you buy your new family home, you're actually in a cash flow positive position with your rental property. You know, you're probably, if you're, if you've done a refinance and you're, let's say you've only got a quarter of your loan left, then you're actually making money now because your rental income is probably going to be higher than what your mortgage payments are. So that adds a little bit more cash flow to your day-to-day life as well. Yeah. And that may work for some people and it may, and it may not, it may be a situation where they do need to sell that property in order to upgrade, but regardless, it's giving you that head start, right? Like it's, it's so important. Um, Yeah. So I think ultimately, you know, it, the moral of the story here is <laughs> it's not as intimidating or as hard to get into the market as you may think as somebody kind of starting out. And it does require proper planning and budgeting. And honestly, working with somebody like you would be super beneficial for somebody younger so that they can kind of learn how do I budget yep. and, and kind of understand how they can kind of save for that for that initial down payment and how they can kind of, um, you know, best do monthly planning to kind of be able to afford maybe a couple extra costs and things like that. But I think in the long run, it definitely makes a ton of sense. And there's also, um, you know, I don't need to go into the details, but there's different 
first time home buying um, incentives for people, especially when the property is kind of under $500,000. The government tends to allow certain things like you don't have to pay property transfer tax. And those are some things that can be really beneficial for people who are kind of putting all of their savings into this one, to this one asset. So uh, there's a lot of options out there. Really good idea to talk to a tax planner and to talk to a financial uh, advisor or a uh, financial coach. And then also obviously a mortgage broker to kind of discuss what all those options are. Yeah. And location, location dependent as well. I know in different countries, they have different incentives in Canada. They have the ability to take some money out of your RRSPs up mm-hmm. to 30. Did you say 35,000 per person? Yeah. Per person yeah. too. Per yeah. person. Yeah. So if it's you and a partner, that's 70,000 that you can take out tax free and you can pay it back over. What was the time frame again? 15 years, 15 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really good way if, you know, if you do have RSPs and you do have employer matching contributions, mm-hmm. uh, you can really get your RSPs up, get some tax advantages, and then take some money out for your first time home purchase, which is a really good way to get started as well, especially if you are, uh, you know, not receiving any family support or anything like that. And you do need to access some funds in a year that you are employed. So um, when it comes to now, my last question really is, and maybe this is a selfish question, but for people that are self-employed, how does it work from a pre-approval process if you have fluctuating income? And as you mentioned before, let's say you were on a hundred thousand and you're normally uh, deducting $50,000 worth of expenses, as we know, self-employed people do. How does that work that it differs obviously from people that are on salary Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think we're seeing a lot of people nowadays moving into either being self-employed or having some sort of a side business. Um, I think the statistics are around 20% of Canadians are self-employed, which is a really large number of people. Um, so the process in terms of kind of verifying that income, um, typically a lender will want to see a two-year history of your T1s and they'll take an average of that two-year history. And that's for anybody who's self-employed, that's for anybody that has any type of fluctuating income. So whether you're commission, whether maybe you're part-time hours, um, they always want to see usually that two-year history average. And then there are, as I kind of mentioned earlier, there's specific lenders that will kind of prefer or have great programs for self-employed individuals. So a lot of the times, um, you know, they'll allow like a 15 to 20% gross up of the net income, knowing that you're, you know, deducting a lot for tax purposes. And so that that can actually give you that extra bump that you kind of need. Um, yeah, so there's definitely options out there and it's really, again, another good reason to speak to a mortgage broker versus just going into your bank, because I can actually tell you which lenders kind of prefer that type of, a um, you know, profession or, or prefer kind of self-employed people. But yeah, the, the difference being, if you are just a regular employee with guaranteed hours, you really just need to kind of show a pay stub and an employment letter. Whereas if you work for yourself, we'll need to see two years of T1s. Um, And we'll have to take kind of the average of those two. And usually lenders will want to see that it's increasing or at least it's steady. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's decreased, unfortunately, they'll just take that current year. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. They want to make sure it's obviously somewhat consistent year over year um, because they want to know that going into the future, there's not going to be these massive kind of fluctuations, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, the list could go on. I feel like I've got so many questions for you. And I think we might have to do a part two because mortgages are one of those things that, you know, I just don't understand why they don't teach people in school. 
even in university and somebody in finance, like I learned something on this episode and, you know, I've been working in finance for nine years now. So there's so much to be learned about Mm -hmm. this. It's such an important decision that people make. You're essentially locked into a contract for 25, 30 years if you don't do refinancing, which a lot of people do. But, you know, it's, it's one of the most important and one of the largest investments that most people will make in their life. So I think it has been so beneficial to have you on the show today. I can't wait to have a part two. Maybe we can get into the refinancing because I know that's an area that a lot of people would be interested in hearing about. Mm -hmm. But um, if there's anything else that you would like to add for first time homeowners that you can think of, uh, you know, as you said, get in early. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we did a pretty good job, hopefully, of touching on everything. I'm sure there's things that we missed, but um, I think overall, yeah, the message is just kind of get started as early as you can and um, don't hesitate to speak to a professional. Don't hesitate to, you know, in, in, in a sense, kind of interview who you'd like to work with because it's really important that you have a good connection with them and that you feel comfortable to ask questions because as we talked about, this is, you know, a very, um, you know, you're tying yourself into, you know, a longer contract and it's nice to make sure that you feel really comfortable with what you're, with what you're getting, right? Like, and fully this is longer than some marriages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, the terms are typically only five years or less, right? But the actual amortization period is longer. So, yeah, it's it's just super important to feel really, really good about who you're working with. And you should yeah. never, ever hesitate to ask questions. And you should always feel super confident and comfortable that you've kind of made the right decision. So that, I would say, is like my final point that I'll hammer home. Amazing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. For our listeners, if you do want to reach out to Samantha and check out her website and her availability in Vancouver, her website is samanthamanning.ca. And again, you can find her on Instagram at samanthamanning.mortgages. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening. And if you love this episode, please share it to your Instagram story and tag me at sandra.m.joe. I would be forever grateful if you left me a five-star review and sent it to a friend so that I can reach as many people as possible. For more information on my financial coaching and how we can work together, check out my website at sandrajoe.com. And until next time, have a great day and go make that money, honey.